Our study leader, Dave Wurtson, has challenged us to begin to think about what we mean when we recite, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. What are we asking? Do we really want it? Why is it so important for us to commit ourselves to this kingdom? Think about these questions as Dave picks up the discussion with a powerful observation about what happens when you walk away. As soon as you walk away from the author of life, you walk into death. As soon as you walk away from the author of health, you walk into sickness. As soon as you walk away from the God of truth, you walk into deception. And on and on it goes. You see, if you walk away from God, you walk away from the kingdom of life, of vitality, of productivity, of faithfulness, of dependability, and you start walking to a world that the Bible characterizes in a big way, the kingdom of darkness. Now that's where this story's picked up in Genesis chapter 4, all the way through into the story of Abraham, and then God begins to work in the story of Abraham to move us towards God choosing a special nation. If you look back at your table of contents, you notice that the next book is the book of Exodus. And so you understand this kingdom concept. What we begin with, we begin with a kingdom concept of the garden. The kingdom equals the garden of Eden. God gave Adam and Eve a simple rule. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That was the kingdom rule. Only one simple kingdom rule. Just don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Okay? Perfect garden, perfect king, subjects, places, beautiful. One simple rule. Remember, a king has to have his rules. One simple rule. What do Adam and Eve do? They break it. So then we start to write another story. You go to the flood and you have the destruction of that rebellion. Then you start to work in Genesis 12 with Abraham. And God begins to move us towards another scene. The book of Exodus begins with a people that's in a kingdom of slavery. They're in a kingdom of Pharaoh. Pharaoh in the book of Exodus, as you look at the, at the table of contents in the book of Exodus, Pharaoh is your first kind of an antichrist, you might say, in some ways. Not really the first, but he's, he's a great type of the ultimate antichrist. And here you have this Egyptian king that's shaking his fist in the face of the living king of all the heaven and earth. And what you have in the story of Exodus is what we looked at when we looked at God at the burning bush appearing to Moses and telling him to go down and saying, I am that I am. I am the God that's with you. And what God starts to do is he starts to reach down from heaven and he starts to get a people and he is going to express his kingdom among this people. You know all the story how they were delivered from Egypt? They come up, they come out of, after the deliverance from the Red Sea, they come up around the horn, down to Mount Sinai. Now turn to Exodus chapter 20. In Exodus chapter 20, we have the giving of the king's laws. And God spoke all of these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you, this is Exodus 20 verse 2. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself any idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation 
of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name, and so forth. What is the king doing? The king on Mount Sinai comes down, he gathers all the people around, and he says, I am the king, and here is my constitutional law. Here is the law of my kingdom. And the people, he asked them, will you obey my law? The people say yes. It's an Adam and Eve scene, only sin is already intrinsic, but it's the same kind of a pattern. God comes down. He's the good, delivering God that delivers them from Egypt. And he says, here's a beautiful law. And what most of Exodus, when you go back to your table of contents, the book of Exodus tells us the law of the great king. And it spells out, brothers and sisters, the most complete legal system that a people could ever have. And the Old Testament of Sinaitic law was God as the king. God was the king. The people were subservient to him, and if they obeyed his law, they would be healthy. Because what did I tell you is the nature of the king. He's a God of health. So in the book of Deuteronomy and in the, in the book of Exodus, he says, if you obey my law, you'll have none of the diseases that the Egyptians had. When they wandered through the wilderness, God showed himself as the God who would protect them from famine. How did this king provide for them? Some of the little kids could tell me about that. Some of the children could tell me. How did God provide for the children of Israel wandering in the wilderness? He sent them bread from heaven and it was called manna. When they were thirsty, how did they get water in the desert? Moses spoke to the rock. And remember, the water came forth. You know what the king was saying? I'm the author of vitality. I'm the author of life. How many of you moms have trouble with your kids wearing their clothes out? They wear holes in the knee and they ruin their clothes. Anybody ever have any trouble with that? If you would have been wandering with the children of Israel for 40 years in the wilderness, guess what? Your clothes never wore out. My brother-in-law would have gone broke. You know, no change of seasons. He works in women's apparel and the clothes never wore out for 40 years. And the great king was telling the people, I can give you health. I can clothe you. I can feed you. I'm right here in your midst. I can guide you. Like as they were wandering through the wilderness in the daytime, they had the cloud of his presence. At night, they had the fire of his presence. It was a time when God's kingdom, in a very special way, became localized among the people. God gave them a land. Remember I told you that a kingdom needs to have a land. So God promised Abraham he would give him the land of Palestine. So as you look back at your table of contents, turn back there. When you move into the book of Joshua, when you move into the period of Joshua, that's the story of General Joshua conquering the kingdom territory, the land of Palestine. And the great king gives them victory. When they obey him, they're given victory. When they disobey him, they don't have victory. And the children of Israel in the book of Joshua were not completely obedient to their great king, so they didn't have total victory. We move into the period of the judges. It's a very interesting period. The period of the judges, instead of having an earthly king, the Lord raised up a series of understudies. When you look at your table of contents and look at the book of Judges, 
The book of Judges is a period for 400 years where God raises up understudies called Judges. And they were directly inspired by the Lord to provide for the kingdom, for his kingdom among the people. And so you go through a whole series of these judges, Jephthah, and you have um, Deborah. You have a woman that's one of the judges. You have uh, Samson, some of the judges that you know well. You, cut, you have Gideon, and you come right through. In fact, Gideon, that when Gideon won his great victory over, over the enemy, that had come like, just, like, just like hundreds of them all over, and he won his great victory. Remember the story with the trumpets and smashing the lights and all that? They won the great victory. The people begged Gideon to be their king. And Gideon said, no, I'm not going to be the king. God is your king. God is really our king. And so Gideon the judge said, I'm just the understudy of God. You need to look to the real king. And then we move to the end of the period of judges. And the prophet Samuel is the first prophet. And he's the, he's the last judge. Now remember the story in 1 Samuel. Look at your table of contents again. In 1 Samuel... In 1 Samuel, the people come. At the end of Samuel's life, he was the last vice-regent, you might say, or understudy, the last judge representing King Yahweh among his people. The people were very concerned. So they came to Samuel and said, we want to have a king like all the other nations. We want to be like everybody else. God comes to them and says, that's not such a very good idea. If, you, if I give you a king like all the other nations, he's going to enslave you because power that's centralized always enslaves. It's a very important principle. You see, a society is always wrestling between two factors, freedom of the individual and order. I'm going to say that again. A society always goes back and forth between freedom of the individual and order. And the idea is, you see, with freedom of the individual in a sinful world, in a sinful world, it creates, as individuals go out and they compete, the strong do, do better, they are more successful, and the weak do badly. And so with the freedom of the individual, it's easy for the society to begin to move toward a lot of injustice. Then they cry out for order, for centralized authority to be able to make things fair. And then you start to move towards when, when there's real chaos, you've got this tremendous power of we want order, and then you get a tyrant. And it goes back and forth. What God did was he provided for the people under his rule with him as the immediate king of the people. He was the perfect judge, the perfect ruler, the one who was always fair. And he also allowed them to have personal freedom. But the people said, no, we don't want that. We don't want you, this invisible king, ruling over us. We want to have a visible, earthly king that we can see. Samuel said, he's going to enslave you. He's going to centralize authority. He's going to take you into his army. He's going to make you work in his palaces. You're going to have to build his palaces. They say, well, we'll take it anyway. And so God gave them a king. And the first king God gave them was Saul. Now, in the, the history of the Old Testament, this idea of a king was not alien to what God had planned for his people. But the people pushed it too early, I believe. They pushed it too soon, and they asked for the wrong kind of a king, 
And so they got a king who really became a tyrant. And you know the story of King Saul. He ended his life defeated, committing suicide on a battlefield where he lost even the Ark of the Covenant. And then God raised up David. Now, if you look at your Bible, we've come through 1 Samuel. Now we're into 2 Kings. And in 2 Kings is the story of God's king. It's the story of King David. And King David is the ideal king of the Old Testament. And he is the one that tells us an awful lot about the grace of God. But this is when the, when the north and the south of Israel is all united together. And the, what's called a theocracy really in many ways had its high point. It had its high point with its greatest king. And the people were responding. And God taught David uh, the law of God. And he was the great sweet singer of Israel. And God, the invisible king, was working through his earthly king, this man called David. And that was a very ideal period. Not a perfect period, because remember we have the, the stress upon God's grace in 2 Samuel because David himself had broken all of God's rules and laws. But because he had a heart for God, which was what God was really after, this was a very high moment in the Old Testament kingdom of Israel where God's heart was being expressed through King David. What was King David's son's name? Solomon. And that's, if you look at your table of contents, now you're into the book of 1 Kings. With the book of 1 Kings, you enter into the period of Solomon. Now Solomon started out really strong. He was God's representative before the people. He built the temple. You can read about tremendous praise choruses that they sang and all of the kingdom was bowing before the Lord God of heaven and earth as Solomon in his younger days followed the principles of the Mosaic law, the king's covenant. But in the middle of his life when God prospered him and made him strong, you know what happened. What did he do? He multiplied his military might. He multiplied all of his alliances through his many marriages with the other nations. And he began to depend upon his military might. And he began to depend upon his, all these alliances. And his wives turned his heart away from God. And he became an idolater. And for the last years of Solomon's life, he put the people of Israel under tremendous slavery. Such tremendous slavery that when Solomon died, the people pleaded with Rehoboam, Solomon's son, to not keep them under that heavy burden. And there was a crucial point as we end the book of 1 Kings and move into 2 Kings, there's a crucial point when the elders in Israel, the leaders of Israel say, Rehoboam, loosen it up. Give the people more freedom. You've enslaved them. You're not following the commands of God. Rehoboam wouldn't listen. He listened to his young associates instead. He said, I'm going to make it even harder. And you move into 2 Kings in the period of the divided kingdom. You move into the period of the divided kingdom. And the whole book of 2 Kings, the argument of 2 Kings, which is repeated in a little bit different nuance in 1 Chronicles and 2 Chronicles is, here was the theocracy. A theocracy is Theo God ruling in his kingdom through these kings in Israel. But the tragedy is just like in the Garden of Eden, the rules are marvelous, the rules are for freedom, the rules are for health, the rules are for life, but what do the people do? 
During 2 Kings, it moved from one king after another. And what do the kings do? And what do the people do? Turn to Hosea chapter 4 and we'll get an analysis after several hundred years of living under this theocracy, what the people did. Hosea chapter 4. Hosea is right smack dab in the middle of the prophetic period. And if you understand this, it'll just bring the Bible together. What the prophet is doing, what the prophet does in Israel, is he takes the people back to Sinai. And he reminds them about the law that God gave them about on Mount Sinai. And he talks to them about their commitment to be obedient subjects to the great king. But the people haven't obeyed. The people haven't followed those laws. And look what Hosea said in, in chapter 4. It says, Hear the word of the Lord, you Israelites, because the Lord has a legal charge. He has a court case, a suit to bring against you who live in the land. Why? First of all, there's no faithfulness. There's no love. There's no intimate relationship with God in the land. Now what that is, is you were told, what's the first commandment? Everyone tell me, thou shalt, tell me, thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart. What's the first commandment? Thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart. What is Hosea saying? There is no, I could summarize those verses, there's no faithfulness, there's no love, there's no intimate relationship with God. You have not loved the Lord your God with all your heart. You've lived for yourself. You haven't, you haven't lived in obedient service to the great king. You are, you are illegitimate children. You're children that have totally turned away from the great king. Second of all, look what else he says. There is cursing in verse 2. There is cursing. There is lying. There is murder. There is stealing. There is adultery. They break forth all bounds and violent bloodshed. And murder follows murder is the idea. And because of this, the land mourns. All who live in it waste away. The beasts of the field, the birds of the air, and the fish of the sea, they're all dying. And that, those verses 1 through 3, are the summary of the prophet of the Old Testament, his case against the people. This is what's supposed to happen. In the Old Testament, after the fall of man, God began to work with a specific nation. And this nation was given a perfect legal system that would only work with God as the king in the center of his people. And it was, it was a good law. The book of Romans says that it was, a, it was a moral law. It was a good law. And if the people would have obeyed, uh, obeyed it, they would have become an example to the nations of health, of vitality. Let me just give you one small example. Do you know that what the dominant reason why armies have lost men down through the centuries in war? You know what the dominant reason they lost men, and it wasn't in battle. It wasn't from wounds in battle. You know how they lost men? Dysentery, cholera, diseases like that. They would sweep through ancient armies and wipe out the whole army. You know what God told the Israelites? Something very practical. Every good camper should know. You go outside the camp and dig a hole and cover up. You know what? You think God doesn't care about everyday life? That's right in the Bible. There's extensive laws about how the people were to live together and how they were, how they were to take, take care of in a hygienic way 
their refuse. But armies for centuries never listened to God's laws. And guys died like flies. In fact, right in our own culture, right in our own culture in the West, when you go up to Nebraska and go through what's called through Mitchell Pass, and I've shared this with you on some of you, when they dug the, the road from Mitchell Pass, every five to ten feet, they found a skeleton. You know why? Because of cholera. Because the people would get cholera in the morning and they'd be dead by the afternoon. You know how they got cholera? Up at Fort Laramie, they didn't listen to what the Old Testament law said. They didn't bury their refuge. You know what they did? They threw it in the Laramie River. It flowed down into the Platte, flowed down 100 miles to Mitchell Pass, and the people dropped like flies, walking by the very river they thought was giving them life. And God said in 1400 B.C., to Moses the prophet, this is how you take care of your refuse. You see, God cares about every single detail of our lives. The Old Testament law gave marvelous insight. You know what? Another principle that I'm sure a lot of you have heard? The Old Testament law says this. You cannot drink the blood of a sacrifice. You cannot do that. Because I want you to respect life. And the sacrificial system is not a curse against life. It's a method of atonement. And then Leviticus says this. God's launder mode says something very important. The life of the flesh is in the... Tell me. The life of the flesh is in the blood. But men and women haven't listened to that. So right in our own country, you've all heard the story, George Washington came down with a cold. Kind of like I have this morning. Like many of you have colds. How many of you have cold this morning? In George Washington's day when you had a cold and you began to run a fever, you know how you get real hot and your face flushed? Well, they were brilliant. They saw the face flush. They said the guy's got too much blood. That's a good deduction, isn't it? So you know what they did? They went out and they got leeches. They put leeches on you and they sucked the blood out of you. You know why George Washington died? He didn't have enough blood. They sucked it all out of him. And all he had was a common cold. Well, he was an elderly man. But the book of Leviticus and the Mosaic Law said for centuries, the life of the flesh is in the blood. You see, what I'm trying to do is just give you a few illustrations of how God cared for these people. And his law was an expression of health. It was an expression of vitality. It was an expression of how to live hygienically. But you know what they did? They're like us. They disobeyed it. And so when you turn over to Hosea chapter 13, we read about the end of this kingdom. We read about the end of the theocracy under the Old Testament. It says this in Hosea 13. It says in verse 10, Where is your king that he may save you? Where are your rulers, your judges in all your towns, of whom you said, Give me a king and give me princes? So in my anger I gave you a king, and in my wrath I, I took him away. The guilt of Ephraim, that's the northern kingdom, is stored up. His sins are kept on record. Pained as of a woman in childbirth come to him, but he is a child without wisdom. When the time arrives, he does not come to the opening of the womb. I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. Where, O oh death, are your plagues? Where, O oh grave, is your destruction? Now, these verses right here should be translated... Like this. Will I ransom them from the power of the grave? Absolutely not. 
Will I redeem them from death? Where, O death, are your plagues? Where, O grave, is your destruction? The next verse says, I will have no compassion even though he thrives among his brothers. The east wind from the Lord will come and blowing in the desert. His spring will fail. His well will dry up. His storehouse will be plundered. All of his treasures. The people of Samaria must bear their guilt because they have rebelled against their God. They will fall by the sword. Their little ones will be dashed to the ground. Their pregnant women will be ripped open. And what it's saying is this is the end of God's theocracy in the Old Testament. It's the end of God's rule among his people according to Mount Sinai. What happened? The people disobeyed. You see, what the book of Romans tells us is the one problem with the Old Testament law, it was a great external law. It was a great system to live. If you want to live under rules and regulations, you ought to go back into the Old Testament because that's the best rules and regulations that have ever been given. Much better than thou shalt not smoke or thou shalt not hold hands or thou shalt not go to the movies. Some of the regulations that were really the Old Testament law in my life when I was just a little kid. You see, the best legal system that was ever given was back here in the Old Testament. You know what the tragedy of it was? It didn't deal with the human heart. And this is the agony of the agony when the human heart isn't dealt with. We end this morning with our time running out on a very dismal note. The kingdom is shattered. God's will isn't being done on earth as it is in heaven. And if the prophets would have stopped there, in fact, many of the critical scholars feel like, well, Dave, you stopped at a really good place today because that's really all that Hosea said. That's really all that Isaiah said. That's really all that Jeremiah said. When Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come, he wasn't asking us to pray for a return to what we've studied today, the theocracy of ancient Israel, which failed because it never dealt with a person's heart. It never got deep into their soul. It never got to the very center of their being and dealt with the sin question. And what the prophets did is after proclaiming the end of the Sinai theocratic kingdom, they went on and talked about a new kingdom that was going to come. They talk about the ruler that's going to come. They talk about where he's going to rule. They talk about what the nature of his kingdom is going to be. And that's the kingdom that Jesus told us we should pray for. And it's a kingdom that's still future to us.